0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If soy is a part of your diet, be it soy milk or tofu, you have Steve Demas to thank, at least in part. In the 1970s, he started making tofu in a small Boulder kitchen. His former business, White Wave Foods, was one of the first in the natural foods industry. Now it's one of the biggest, with products including Silk Soy Milk, Horizon Organics, and Wallaby Yogurt another major food player, the French giant Danone, has agreed to buy White Wave for roughly $10 billion. We're going to talk more in a bit about what this says about the food industry. But first, to White Wave's roots. Steve Demas joins us from Boulder, and welcome to the program. Good morning. Take us back to those early days. You started cooking tofu in a big cauldron in a small kitchen in Boulder. And describe for me what the operation looked like then.
1: Boy, we're way back there when the dinosaurs roamed the earth. (laughs) Um, At that time, uh, small was beautiful uh, in concept, and artisan was highly regarded. And I decided that I wanted to open an artisan tofu company. And I and my partner, Pat Calhoun, we did just that up in Boulder. It was called the Cow of China. And we had, you know, um, an iron cauldron, a wooden stave barrel, uh, some handmade tools and implements. Uh, So effectively, we were trying to replicate uh, the Japanese artisans and the Chinese artisans who had made village tofu. Unfortunately, we found that small was very beautiful but highly unprofitable. And we sort of switched gears to becoming a true manufacturer um, after struggling for about a year.
0: But that, of course, implies that there was demand for tofu. And my understanding is at the time, it
1: was not a mainstream food. Uh, All four customers loved our product. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Boulder and Colorado have been extraordinarily um, generous to me in offering me a platform on which to introduce some of these foods. Uh, While it wasn't accepted by mainstream, it was uh, an increasing demand product in Boulder, and we were one of the the very first uh, to offer a consumer a vegetable protein product. And how did
0: you sell it to those who might have been wary at first? What did did you tout
1: as its benefits? Well, we touted its protein, which is always the, um, uh, the selling point of soy. It's a complete amino acid profile in the soybean, and that's rare in the legume or plant protein area. As far as usage, that's where it became difficult. Uh, as far as nutritional content, had lower saturated fats and it had uh, equal um, protein efficiency to chicken or something equivalent um as, how we introduced it to the public was through um demonstrations we uh were at the Colorado State Fair at one point in all of the supermarkets, and we would make up tofu meatballs, tofu sandwiches, anything that we could possibly get our hands on um and it, it you know for all our of our efforts i 'd have to say it didn't work it I was very passionate about it, but convincing. America to try a substance that could be described as soft, strange, no flavor, never had anything like this before, uh, was a real challenge. Well, how did you get
0: over it? I mean, if, if those trips to the supermarkets and the state fair, I suppose where funnel cakes did better, uh, were unsuccessful, how did you bridge the gap?
1: We were an overnight success in 18 years. Um, <laughs> tenacity and perseverance really do count. And it really was a rising tide. My observation of why I even wanted to get into this product was because there was a rising demand for uh, food on the planet and there was an ever-increasing population base. I had been living overseas in India For a number of years and became very sensitive to the fact that we were the highest consumption country in the world. And I took it upon myself to introduce the American mainstream to an alternative way of living, which consequently would um, increase the amount of available protein on the planet due to efficiency. And thus, somebody out there, in my estimation, uh, was going to benefit from this. There's a myth to dispel
0: that you used to deliver tofu around Boulder in a little red wagon.
1: Uh, my understanding is that that actually happened, but it wasn't you toting it around. That's fair. And I have to, I, I'll give you the punchline to the story is when we ultimately sold the company, more of the investment community gave me little red wagons than they gave me money, I think. <laughs> um at at the time when the shop the cow of China was making tofu, we would it would be fresh every morning, and there was an, a health food store down the str- down the street in Boulder called Down to Earth, and um, Trudy Stewart and her child um, would load up in the little red wagon and then take I don't know fifty to a hundred blocks of tofu, maybe three four blocks down the road. Well, I got credited with taking the wagon up and down the street while, in fact, I was driving a Jeep down to Denver to distribute it to the natural food stores there. The tofu Jeep.
0: Yeah, the tofu Jeep. I want to mention that the cauldron in which you cooked that early tofu was recently named one of Colorado's top historic artifacts.
1: I'm sure a lot of sorceresses out there would love to have this cauldron. (laughs) It It is the ideal that came, looking like it came from um, the early settlement days, we we processed soy milk, hot soy milk in this cauldron um, for a number of years, and we would curdle the, the milk and um, precipitate the curds out of this liquid and then press them into tofu. So it was an actual working tool for us during our artisan days. Once we shifted to factory production, and we, like every other factory, used stainless steel equipment for sanitation purposes, but this was the beginnings of our uh, of our of our company, and we're quite honored to be recognized for being one of the pioneers in Boulder, uh, at, let alone the United States, in the soy industry. You are listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan
0: Warner, and we are speaking with natural foods pioneer Steve Demas who founded White Wave. He's no longer with that company, but uh, we're speaking to him in light of White Wave's apparent acquisition by the French giant Danone. uh, You've talked about the nutritional benefits of soy, but some people question that. They say soy is high in a compound that acts like estrogen in the body, that it may disrupt normal estrogen levels. Critics also say soy has a high level of an acid that reduces the absorption of minerals like calcium, magnesium, and
1: zinc. Uh, What is your response? That's a great question, and I love responding to this. First of all, let's talk about the trypsin inhibitor that um, exists in all raw soybeans. Not even farm animals will eat raw soy. Soy has to be processed with heat before the inhibitor is neutralized. Once that occurs, then there is no enzymatic um, problem with the consumption of soy, and it's not going to give anybody stomach aches or anything. So that just puts aside some of the availability of the uh, the nutrients in the bean. The way I respond to the question um that is posed about the safety of soy as I ask a question mm-hmm. would you have faith in a product that has been consumed for over 2000 years by over billions and billions of people and yet none of the evi- there is no evidence of what you're talking about in the cultures that consumed this soy the answer is very obvious it's one of the greatest epidemiological studies that's ever been done on a food um The fact of the matter is we're talking about what's called low-technology processed soy or aqueous, water-extracted soy. I make no argument for chemically altered um, soy or any other form of extracting the proteins, Mm. but I do point to the indigenous foods of miso, tempeh, tofu, all consumed in Asia for thousands of years, and yet there is no epidemic, there is no evidence of this. And to, the, uh, to my surprise, no one in the soy industry is standing up and saying this. Take me back again to those early days um,
0: uh, of the company that became White Wave. Were there other companies on the horizon at that time? Did Boulder feel like something of a, of a nursery for, for uh, these kinds of foods?
1: well it still does in fact yeah um this is probably the the greatest spawning grounds of natural foods companies in the united states at the time that i opened uh the doors for white wave there was an, an there was one other small company uh, that had just also started up making tofu in boulder um and there were another about 200 250 something like that um that opened around the country uh after about 10 years of weeding amongst all of these competitors regionally, um, or maybe more, 15 years, there was probably 10 left standing. Wow. And obviously, we were one of them.
0: Yeah. What were the other names that that survived?
1: Uh, Nasoya out of San Francisco, uh, Azumaya, uh, which is a Japanese um, a company that was very old. Uh, New England Soy Dairy out of Massachusetts was probably one of the uh the earliest and most progressive but they were so far ahead of their time that they actually um <clears throat> they couldn't find demand they were making soy yogurt in 1982 and soy milk way before we ever were in a milk carton wow but the mar- the market just wasn't there nor was the technology Uh, to make the flavor acceptance there. Interestingly, there was a soy factory in virtually every city that had a major anti-war movement in the 60s. Ann Arbor, Berkeley, Austin, Boulder, um, and any number of cities that were considered progressive at that time somehow ended up with a tofu company. You sold White
0: Wave to a major player in the food industry, Dean Foods, in the early 2000s, and you stayed for several years, and then left that company. What uh, were your kind of internal dialogues about
1: selling and whom to sell to? Well, first of all, we resisted the sale to Dean Foods. At that time, it was a company by the name of Suiza Foods in. Dallas, and they had purchased Dean Foods Chicago. Dean Foods Chicago had invested an amount of money in us with an op- with an opportunity to buy us after five years. Um, we had what we considered given them a sweetheart deal, and when they were acquired by another company. We sued in federal court to be released from the deal and then paid the debt back of the previous previous investments. Mm. Uh, we lost in the court of appeals on that. And at that time, um, there was a great fear of being eaten by a large corporation. So through the legal counsel of Dean Foods, uh, Michelle Goolsby, we contacted the chairman, Greg Engels, and... The two of them came up and met with uh, my partner, Pat, and I, and effectively the conversation was that um, you have all the rights, obviously legally, to buy the company, but that does not mean the management team will be coming along with it. That includes me and just about everybody that you can pass in the offices. So it wasn't a threat. It was, we need to have autonomy. And we need to continue running this business the way we have been running this business and we'll be a happy part of this new corporation. Uh, they agreed entirely. They ripped up all um, previous agreements and limitations on the company, and they supported our growth. Now, they bought us when we were, um, I believe, a hundred and twenty-five million dollar business may have been more than that. Um, but when I left uh, at the end of this tenure, we were three hundred four million dollars with okay. a budget for 360. So we were producing everything that capitalism um, wanted us to produce, return on assets, growth, profits. Um, so the experience inside operating as an autonomous company, Uh, was very positive. And we felt that we were going to drive this um, to being a widely accepted mainstream product in a very short period of time. Steve, we have just a few seconds, but I
0: understand that someone recently gave you the ore, the large paddle that you used to stir the tofu in the cauldron.
1: Is that true? I'm very proud to tell you that that's one of the board members or previous board members of KGNU up here, Chris O'Reilly, uh, who still volunteers work time here. And um, he did. He walked up to me at a party and gave me that uh, tofu paddle.
0: Steve Dimas is founder of White
1: Wave Foods, being sold now to Danon
0: Foods of France for about $10 billion. Turns out this sale has stirred A lot of conversation and some controversy in the industry. And after a break, we'll learn more about that from a senior writer at Fortune Magazine. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Mourner. Before the break, we heard from the founder of White Wave Foods, Steve Demas, about the Colorado company's early days and the philosophy behind it. Now, more about the $10 billion deal to sell it to the French company, Denon. That deal is controversial. Beth Coet covers the food business for Fortune magazine. She joins us by phone from New York. And, uh, Beth, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: What does this deal say about the overall business of natural foods, do you think?
2: I think more than anything, this shows that natural, organic foods are mainstream. I mean, here we have, this is probably, this is the biggest deal so far we've seen in the natural and organic food space. and. Hmm. I think I think this is it's a done deal. Natural natural healthy food it's it's no longer niche.
0: And when you say natural healthy organic are those meaningful terms or are those just slogans?
2: Well, so that's a different kind of question. So <laughs> I think I think here this is a tricky one because organic definitely has a real definition. There's there's it's defined by regulators. We know what that means. There're certain standards that have to be met. Natural not so much. And I think that we've seen this term used by food companies through time to to maybe try to present their products in a certain way. And it, that can be misleading to consumers. And, and food companies have gotten sued for this, um, saying that something is, is natural when, you know, it's really not.
0: So when you say this is gone mainstream, are you referring to organic? Are you referring to simply the desire... To be healthy, what let's put a finer point on what has gone mainstream.
2: Sure, I think it is the desire to be healthy, the desire for clean labels. Again, a term that is a little mushy um, for people to to want fresh food. To people, for people to want as, as I guess, a small an ingredient list as possible. Mm-hmm. That's I think that's how a lot of people think about it.
0: Things they can pronounce.
2: Things they can pronounce, exactly.
0: Things that probably don't start with X, for instance.
2: Right, right, exactly.
0: You know, what I find interesting about White Wave today is that, of course, it has the soy products, but it also has organic milk, like cow milk. Um, yes. Horizon. So I guess consumers really want both, milk and the alternatives.
2: This, uh, I think that this particular point, that, that White Wave is both... Um, Milk alternatives and milk is probably one of the most fascinating parts of the deal because, on the one hand, it sells, it's got this major brand, Silk, which is plant based milk alternatives, and on the other hand, which are that sector is trying to disrupt the dairy industry, and on the other hand, they do have this organic milk business. Both are doing very well. So, there is this interesting tension that we're seeing play out within this, this single company
0: how are natural foods doing in general in the food industry compared to you know doritos or hot pockets or something
2: so we have seen natural foods however we want to define that outperform the rest of the packaged goods industry as we've seen consumers shift their dollars toward what they view as as healthier fare so packaged goods overall we've we've seen sort of a slowing down of of the processed food segment and more money going into to, to foods that maybe have a little bit of a, a healthier slant, at least in the, the eyes of consumers.
0: And that's what the French conglomerate Danone sees here, I'm guessing.
2: Exactly. Exactly. They view this as a way to really first get into the U.S. market, but also to get into the U.S. market in, in a particular segment that's, that's doing well.
0: So many of these companies start with you know, a real philosophy, a real ethic driving them. Does that ethic, do you think, naturally get erased when a larger company absorbs it? Or is there a way for that to persist?
2: So this, I think that this is critical when these companies, when we've seen a lot of, just to put this in broader context, we've seen big food companies acquire lots of smaller, natural, healthy food brands. Um, This we Especially in the last couple of years, this has really picked up steam. And these companies are going for extremely high multiples, and, and they're buying them at the, at these prices in part because there is this health halo attached to the smaller brands that are more entrepreneurial, that maybe have this certain um, – that, that consumers perceive in a certain way. Um, so it's critical when these big food companies buy the smaller brands that they don't mess that up Um Otherwise, they're really eroding a lot of the value, and we've seen that happen before. Um, I think Danone in particular, has a good track record here. They've they acquired uh, stake in Stonyfield, um, and really left it alone. And I think that that is the answer in some way. If anything, you they need to learn from these smaller brands rather than vice versa.
0: Oh, fascinating. Well, an industry watch group called the Cornucopia Institute has asked the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department to block the sale of White Wave to Danone. Their complaint says bringing these two companies together would give Danone a larger share of the U.S. organic dairy market than any company has ever controlled and would have, quoting here, a chilling effect on competition. Is this type of complaint unusual in the industry? I mean, already you've established this deal is is unusual in its size. But are these types of complaints unusual?
2: Anytime you see a deal like this, when a a big food company buying up a small company, it makes people unhappy. Um, They feel like, or consumers who have been fans of the brand feel like this big company is going to come in and destroy it. Big food does not have a particularly good reputation. Um, And I think in general, people who really use these brands who are fans, they, they want to protect it. Um, I mean, when General Mills acquired Annie's for nearly a billion dollars, there was a big outcry about that, too. So I think in conveying that they're going to really leave this alone, let it let them do their own thing, that's probably the best approach here.
0: All of this points to the, to the question of why these smaller companies would sell out, um, and I use that not in the judgmental sense. Would say, sure. um, you know, Justin's nut butter or Izzy. Why wouldn't they just grow their own operations if there is so much potential in this market and take the profits? You know, why why sell to someone like Danone?
2: The food business is really hard. Margins are slim, and it's a double edged sword. Here, we want these products, right? We want we consumers are saying we want more natural goods. We want healthier, fair. How do you do that? You've got to scale. So yes, you're gonna these companies get acquired by big food, but then they are much more accessible to the masses. Perhaps even if as you scale, your cost the cost of ingredients can go down, um, prices can go down. There there are benefits. It's more. It's more sort of the reputational hazards, I think, that are that are a risk.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's certainly what we heard uh, before the break from Steve Demas. This idea that part of his goal was to get soy in front of more people, and that selling could do that. Uh, Beth, thanks right. for thanks for being with us.
2: Thanks for having
0: me. Beth Coet, senior writer covering the food industry for Fortune magazine. She spoke to us about the proposed sale of Colorado-based white wave foods to Danone, the French conglomerate. Officials for both companies hope to complete that deal by year's end. Coming up, the next big thing in astronomy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A planet that could support life has been discovered relatively close by. This rocky planet orbits a star called Proxima Centauri. It's the star closest to our sun, and its planet is in the habitable zone, which means temperatures there could sustain liquid water. The search for planets outside our solar system is a new priority for astronomers, including recent hires at CU Boulder. I'm joined by our regular guest, Doug Duncan, director of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder, an astronomer himself. Welcome back to the program.
3: Hello, Ryan.
0: So Proxima Centauri is the nearest star to our solar system, about four light years away. Pretty close. And now we know that it has
3: this this planet. Paint a picture of the star and the planet. For us. So, Proxima Centauri is a smaller star than the Sun. It's cooler. So, if you imagine being outside on the planet of Proxima Centauri, you'd see a deep red Sun in the sky. Uh, The star is not nearly as bright or powerful as our Sun is, but the planet is much closer than the Earth is to the Sun. Hmm. So, every star you can calculate what's called the habitable zone, not too close not too far, just right, for good temperatures on a planet. And because this star is is less bright than the sun, the planet just happens to be close enough that the temperatures – would be relatively hospitable.
0: Relatively hospitable. Does that mean a little hotter than it is here, a little cooler?
3: Uh, pretty comparable. Okay. Uh, probably temperature so that water could be liquid. Right. And we think water is essential for life. Of course, that's very different from all the other things that may be essential for life.
0: Does this planet have a name or is it, you know, some X5496? You know, that's four, nine, that's six. somewhat
3: controversial. Okay. When we first started finding extrasolar planets, um uh, people wanted to name them. That was good for the first couple of dozen, 100. Now that we're up to thousands, now nah, we just call them Proxima Centauri B or C. Not too imaginative, but more practical. So in relation to their star, I see. Right. And you know, then as you've alluded to
0: there, the number of exoplanets that have been found, really just in the last couple of
3: decades. This is enormous. It's been astonishing to me. I was actually present at the announcement of the first extrasolar planet going around a star like the sun. It was about 20 years ago in Switzerland. Wow. And uh, everyone kind of looked at each other and said, we've been searching and wondering for centuries, we finally have the technology. And as soon as the technology got good enough, we're just finding them left and right.
0: Proxima Centauri's name even includes this idea of proximate, of, of
3: near us. Is it close enough that we could see the star with a telescope? So, so you can't—so Proxima Centauri, even though it's close, yeah. it's a small enough star that you couldn't see it. It's, it's associated with Alpha and Beta Centauri, which are much brighter. And okay. you, Alpha Centauri actually is a lot like the sun. And it's a big, bright star, but it's in the southern hemisphere. Mm. It's near the Southern Cross. So you couldn't walk out tonight, even if it was brighter, and see Proxima Centauri. It's too far south for people in Colorado. Okay, um, You could, for what it's worth, walk outside and see the Great Square of Pegasus, and the star 51 Pegasus, you could Google that, was the first star like the sun that was found. So we can see that one from 20 years ago, but the new one is in the Southern Hemisphere. Okay. And this notion that the planet
0: near the Proxima Centauri is habitable really just refers to the idea that liquid water might exist? And
3: the fact that the planet is uh, rocky. It's ah, small and rocky like the Earth. Not that, gaseous. Exactly. 51 Peg was actually much more like a, the, the planet around it was much more like Jupiter. You know, the more planets we find, the more interesting it gets. The one around Pegasus was like Jupiter, But it was closer than Mercury to the star, and that blew everybody's minds. Hmm. So I don't know which is more interesting, to find Earth-like planets or to find totally unexpected new types of planets. Good question. What has allowed us to see exoplanets and
0: to discover them so
3: rapidly? two things. Um, The original ones were found by what's called the Doppler effect, where I think we've done this on the air. If a train goes by you, the the pitch of the siren goes, the Doppler effect, the waves get stretched out. And beginning about 20 years ago, we were able to observe those Doppler shifts so precisely that if there was an unseen planet orbiting a star and making it move, we could detect that. Then we launched the Kepler- Satellite, And that was a completely different approach. It monitors 100,000 stars and waits for a planet to just pass in front of the star. Now, that only dims it by a fraction of a percent. Mm-hmm. But digital cameras have gotten so good that if you have a really good digital camera, like the Kepler satellite has, you can notice that little dip in the light. And so this has really
0: just opened the field of exoplanet science. Would, it has. Is this
3: the new black in uh, in astronomy? <laughs> you know, I think it is, and and the reason I think that I teach a, a big astronomy class for non majors every year, okay. and I have the students vote how interested they are. Is it worth spending money to find out if there's other planets and potentially life out there? And I got to tell you, overwhelmingly, people think that's worthwhile to spend a little money to see really, you know, if there are other planets like the Earth. So they vote that Earth-like planets are the most interesting. And of course, conditions for life would be the most interesting of all. It seems that the faculty at CU
0: Boulder is starting to reflect this as well with uh, additions to the faculty uh, that are exoplanet experts.
3: It's definitely a growth part of astronomy. Uh Honestly, I think if I was starting in astronomy myself— that is uh, an area I'd be very interested in pursuing. Each time, see, I'm, uh, I've worked on equipment. I'm very interested in how astronomy gets done. And if you just make the equipment a little bit more sensitive, you start to find more and more and more planets, and you find the smaller ones which are more like Earth. So this is such an exciting time. And for the first time, uh, astronomers are talking to biologists because, you know, Our job is to find the planets with the oceans, like the Earth, with the right temperature. And then it's the biologist's job to tell us, how does life begin? So that's a dialogue that really didn't happen much before. No, not at all. And to NASA's credit, they have been supporting astrobiology, we call it. You know, try and put yourself in the picture of a star like this extra, this, this Proxima Centauri. You look outside, you're on an Earth-like planet, but does it have an atmosphere? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's got volcanoes going off. It's early in the life of the planet. You know, we didn't have oxygen billions of years ago. That came from plants. So the original Earth was like this. Volcanoes outgassing all these chemicals, and then down in the ocean— Maybe like at the bottom of the ocean today, these these black smokers, they're called. There's actually life miles down in our ocean, and it it draws its life from chemical reactions at the bottom of the sea. So I think this is the kind of picture uh, on this planet around Proxima Centauri. If it has an ocean, what's going on down in the ocean, these these, uh, small stars— have a lot of ultraviolet and x-rays. For that matter, so did our sun when it was young. I've personally studied young stars like the sun in the Pleiades, the seven sisters, cluster of stars that's very young. And all of those stars are giving off more ultraviolet and x-rays than today. And so some biologists should come on the program and say, does that enhance mutations? Hmm. Would that be helpful to the development and flourishing of life? Or would it be deadly? Maybe that's why down in the oceans is a good place. Because you're protected a little bit from the ultraviolet.
0: Extraterrestrial seafood. You're, saying. <laughs> you're listening to yes. Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Doug Duncan, astronomer and director of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder, is back with us. Our focus today: exoplanets, exosolar systems, and of course, one way to establish or or um, prove all of these things about atmosphere or about life would be to send a probe. If if not, you know, manned spaceflight. Are there any thoughts to go to an an exoplanet? It would be, gosh, that would be a, a death
3: well. They are thoughts, but slog. they better be the. They better be the thoughts of a very patient person. Okay. Okay. We recently celebrated uh, passing by Pluto and the New Horizons spacecraft, which, of course, has a lot of Colorado connections.
0: Years in trajectory. Nine
3: years to get to Pluto at that speed. Proxima Centauri would only be seventy thousand years away, okay, <laughs> yes, yeah, so
0: again, when we say it's close, it is all relative, right we have to we probably would get to Mars first, wouldn't we
3: oh yes, uh-huh yeah, and and not only that, even the Pluto spacecraft only had a payload of sixty seven pounds, and so if you're going so much farther to a nearest star, the payload of your spacecraft would be postage stamp sized. Now cameras are getting smaller and smaller, so, so you put
0: one iPhone on there, and you're close.
3: Yeah, it's a it's a real challenge. You know, I'm very proud that way back in the end of the 1960s, I was part of the original march on NBC Studios that saved Star Trek for the future, and I think the fact that it's still going strong 50 years later. Proves the interest of people, but the technical challenges are big. Yeah.
0: It's funny. I've been thinking a lot about Star Trek as you've spoken today because each of these new discovered exoplanets strikes me as a Star Trek episode. You know, it's like, (laughs) what could we learn from the people of that planet were were they to exist? How do you know that exoplanet research isn't a scientific fad?
3: I think because of the interest. You know, uh, I have some fun— and I have my students vote. It, 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 it's a challenge that I really enjoy because it's the non-majors class, right? Everyone has to take a science class. And they come in and they cross their arms and look at me and go, okay, I'm here, but I don't have to like it. <laughs> but but then I ask them, have you ever wondered, does the universe go on forever? Could it have an edge? Did it have a unique beginning? How many wondered that? And every single hand goes up. And then the other thing I ask for is, have you ever wondered, are there other planets with life? And virtually every person indicates their interest. So I think that the scientists are no different. That's a fundamental question about other planets and other life, and we're interested in it. That is not going away. Thanks so much, Doug. You're welcome.
0: Astronomer Doug Duncan, director of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. He joins us regularly to talk about space science and its many connections in Colorado. Just ahead, the dobrato, a musical instrument invented by a Gunnison man. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And this is the sound of a Colorado-made instrument called the dobrato. The dobrato is a mashup of an acoustic guitar, a dobro, with a note-bending lever. Kent Viles Frankenstein. this new instrument, those are his words, at a guitar store in Gunnison. The Debrato has caught on with some famous musicians, Jimmy Buffett, Tom Petty, and Michael Martin Murphy, to name a few. And a welcome to the program, Kent.
4: Well, thank you, Ryan. It's really nice of you to have me.
0: You've been a musician for most of your life. You have a music store with hundreds of guitars, banjos, mandolins, dobros. What made you think That's all correct. What made you think that you needed to invent a new instrument? There there was a need here, I guess.
4: Right. Well, you know, it was more of a curiosity for me at that point. This goes back about 6 years and I at that point was playing a resophonic style guitar and playing more blues oriented and maybe some more progressive finger styling uh, guitar in different alternate tunings. And I just thought it could be interesting to come up with another voice for the instrument. So I started uh, exploring the idea of putting a vibrato system on the resophonic guitar.
0: Introduce us to these terms. I don't know what resophonic means. What does that mean, first off?
4: Sure. So a resophonic guitar, they were basically invented uh, in 1929. And at that point guitars were very small guitars. They were called parlor guitars, and they were uh, essentially just played in parlors in a real close proximity to the listeners, so they didn't project well. And the guitar was becoming more and more popular at that time, and people wanted to use them in the big bands and in dance bands, uh, but you frankly couldn't hear them. So there was kind of a call made out to the luthier industry that we need to come up with something loud. And, and keep in mind, this is pre-electric guitars. So the Dopira brothers uh, were the ones who came up with the concept of a resophonic-style guitar, uh, unique in the sense that it doesn't work like a standard steel string guitar. Uh, it has an aluminum cone underneath the strings, and that's what vibrates that produces the sound. And the result was, it was probably five times as loud as the guitars of that era. So it became hugely popular right away.
0: Hmm. So you uh, added even to that by creating the dobrato. And um, I, I understand you have one there with you. Can, can you, I do. Can, yeah, give us an example of a sound it can make. that sure. You know, in, instruments that came before it cannot
4: Right. Well, we'll just start with just the straight uh, resophonic guitar tone. Okay. Let me give you a little example. All right. <laughs> You can hear it has a bit of a metallic kind of sound, but it's a very cutting, edgy kind of tone. Okay. So my next step was when I mentioned that I wanted to add a vibrato to it. What the vibrato does is it allows you to loosen the tensions, tension on the strings, all the strings simultaneously. And uh, this, this piece was designed by Paul Bigsby uh, back in the 50s. And Paul was a motorcycle engineer and racer, and uh, he designed motorcycles. He had a close friend who was a guitarist. And at that time, uh, the Hawaiian music was very popular. And Hawaiian music would use this wavering kind of sound and a slide type of sound. And he wanted to see if Paul could produce something for him for his guitar that he could replicate some of these sounds. So Paul designed this vibrato tailpiece. And the tailpiece consists of an arm, and all the strings are wrapped around one of the bars of the arm. So if I push down on the arm, it loosens the tension on the strings. If I waver the arm, it turns it into more of a vibrato kind of voice. Okay. And I'll let you hear how that works.
0: On, On the vibrato, yes.
4: So the vibrato is very similar to what you would do with your voice. So yeah. you want to sing with a very straight tone, but sometimes you want to add some vibrato. So you can add various amounts of it. Um, so you can make it very light or you can make it very deep, uh, depending on how far you depress the arm.
0: So you've really walked us through all of the innovations that you carried on into the dobrato and what do you like most about the dobrados sound, what, what your instrument brings?
4: You know, what I like about it is it just adds flavor to pretty much any style of play. The vibrato aspect of it um, can be used in virtually anything, just like you would add vibrato to your voice in any style of music. Uh, the, the other component, though, that I've uh, added to this instrument is a uh, feature called the B-bender. Okay. And a B bender. Uh, this is a device that was actually introduced in the 1960s. It was designed by Gene Parsons and Clarence White, and what they were trying to do is replicate on a guitar some of the voicings you get out of a pedal steel guitar. Hmm. And what it does, it was a very—it's very mechanical at that point. Um, our version is a very stripped down, much more ergonomic way of going about it. But um, what it does is it pulls one string, one whole tone. So it's kind of the quintessential pedal steel sound, and I'll, I'll give you a demonstration in a second, but it's pulling just one string. So it's the same thing that a foot pedal on a pedal steel guitar is accomplishing. And so if you'd like, I'd give you a little demonstration of that.
0: Yes, please. The Debrato, once again, made in Gunnison, Colorado. <laughs> that's a B-bender. So much of what you played has a, almost a mournful quality. Is it a sad instrument? And I, I say that lovingly, oh. by the way.
4: <laughs> I would hope not. Um, <laughs> you know, like I say, because it, it is used in many different styles of music. So what I was just doing was replicating the pedal steel kind of voicing. Yeah. and But there's people who use it in jazz and blues and all styles of music. And and utilize the bender and the vibrato in ways that suit those styles of music. So it's very versatile.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Kent Viles from Gunnison, Colorado, the creator of the Dobrado, sort of a mashup of guitar and dobro with a few other note-bending additions. You can actually see this instrument for yourself at cprnews.org. And, boy, you have some... Big names among your customers, Jimmy Buffett, Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top, Tom Petty, Jason Isbell. Right, right. Yeah, how many of these do you make a year?
4: Well, you know, from the beginning, I started with the concept, but I hadn't developed my wood-bodied version of the instrument. And so I was purchasing uh, metal-bodied resophonic uh, guitars from a a company and. Texas, Uh and I would go ahead and do the modification to turn them into what is now the Dobrado. So I I sold about 120 of those instruments, uh, mainly through a shop in Nashville called Corner Music. And uh, but in the meantime, I was always prototyping and trying to perfect the wood-bodied version of it because I knew that was the end game. The voicing of the wood-bodied instrument is much more versatile than the uh, metal bodies. Uh, metal bodies are very kind of one dimension and that one dimension is very great. It's a great sound. It's great for very loud, robust blues. But the, the wood body lends itself to all styles of music and it has a little softer tone, a woodier tone, as you would imagine.
0: Mm-hmm. And so how, how many of those do you make a year?
4: So the wood body we just introduced this year at the uh, NAMM show out in Los Angeles and that was about five months ago. And... uh so far, we've produced 38 uh, pieces. Uh, it's going to be a run of 100 pieces, and then we'll, we'll evaluate what we want to do moving forward at that point.
0: Kent, how do how do musicians find out about you? Or do you go to them?
4: <laughs> well, you know, one thing, <clears throat> pardon me, it's, it's a unique enough design that it really stands out. Mm. And when I get these A-list players like, Jimmy Buffett and Billy Gibbons, Mike Campbell, and and so forth, performing on stage, uh, that that puts a lot of eyeballs on it, gets a lot of interest in it, and ultimately people will contact me that way. Um, in, in Gunnison, Colorado, though, we're very tourist-driven in the summer, and for about five months out of the year, we get people traveling Highway 50 and going up to our beautiful Crested Butte area and so forth. And they stop in the shop, and, and many of them will just happen across it uh, and and be taken by it. Uh, but like I say, I've, I've always worked with Corner Music out in Nashville, and uh, Corner Music really championed the product, and they put it in the hands of some big players. So uh, it's really just kind of that spin off effect of 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 introducing it in a great environment like Nashville.
0: Is the vibrato really hard to play?
4: You know, I work so hard at making the whole mechanics of the instrument very ergonomically uh, simple to get around. So I find people who are hobbyists, definitely professionals, but if they sit down with it for literally a couple, three minutes, they get the concept. And it's designed to fit in your right hand, your your strumming or picking hand, uh, very comfortably. And, and the movement of either the vibrato or the B-bend is a very simple motion. So actually, it doesn't take long to
0: adapt to it. Interesting. Yeah, of course, instruments would need to be ergonomic to be simple to play. Kent, thanks for being with us.
4: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Ryan.
0: Kent Viles joining us from Castle Creek Guitar. That's his store on Gunnison's Main Street. He's the inventor of the unusual instrument known as the Debrado. Again, there's an image of it at cprnews.org. Finally, today, we are looking for Colorado voters who plan to choose a third party candidate at the top of the ticket this year, so who won't vote for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. If that's you, Email us with a brief explanation of why, and perhaps who you are supporting instead. Email news at cpr.org. Again, news at cpr.org or tweet at Colorado Matters. We may use your responses in a future story. I'm Ryan Warner.